Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's web radio and your source for all the latest mental health related news, including anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, how to rid yourself of bad habits, better informing the general public about mental health issues, and along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing help for it. All that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this first February 2015 edition, uh, pre-recorded for air on February the 4th, 2015. And, as always, uh, in this new year, trying to keep the focus on the health of the brain when I can. There are certainly other subjects that warrant attention, but that's certainly the major topic for the new year. And in keeping with that, first up on tonight's show, I want to tell you about some research that's found some evidence linking brain inflammation and the psychiatric illness major depression. Now, the, the concept of brain inflammation being linked to mental illness certainly is not new. Here is a study with some new evidence, and we will examine that, reviewing the subject along the way. But this new study by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health found that the measure of brain inflammation in people who were experiencing clinical depression was increased by 30%. These findings were published on January the 28th in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry, and they have important implications for developing new treatments for depression. Previous studies have looked at markers of inflammation in blood, but this is the first definitive evidence found of inflammation in the brain. Specifically, the research team was able to measure the activation of immune cells, known as microglia, that play a key role in the brain's inflammatory response. To investigate whether brain inflammation was increased in people during clinical depression, researchers conducted brain scans on 20 patients with depression but who were otherwise healthy and 20 healthy control participants using a brain imaging technique called positron emission tomography or PET or PET scanning. The results showed a significant elevation of brain inflammation in participants with depression Rates of inflammation were also highest among those with the most severe depression. Although the process of inflammation is one way that the brain protects itself, similar to the inflammation 
of a sprained ankle. Too much inflammation may not be helpful and can be damaging. A growing body of evidence suggests the role of inflammation in generating the symptoms of a major depressive episode, such as low mood, loss of appetite, and inability to sleep. But what was previously unclear was whether inflammation played a role in clinical depression independent of any other physical illness. This discovery has important implications for developing new treatments for a significant group of people who suffer from depression. It provides a potential new target to either reverse the brain inflammation or shift to a more positive repair role with the idea that it would alleviate symptoms. The drive to uncover new ways to target and treat depression is fueled by the reality that more than half of people with major depression do not respond to antidepressant treatments and 4% of the general population is in the midst of a clinical episode. Current treatments do not target inflammation and treating depression with anti-inflammatories is one avenue for future research. Therefore, as yet, it's way too premature to recommend taking anti-inflammatory drugs to treat major depression. Uh, it's one thing to discover increased brain inflammation in patients with depression. It's quite another to go from that to saying that you can solve it with anti-inflammatory medications. But again, this proves the point that increased levels of inflammation in the brain are associated with mental illness. And this doesn't come as a big surprise. Uh, after all, we know that environmental stress, psychosocial stress, any type of stress, increases secretion of cortisol, and cortisol circulating in the blood increases the levels of inflammatory proteins called cytokines, and these are the culprit in terms of increasing inflammation in the body in general and in the brain in particular. Now, so if antidepressants do not have anti-inflammatory properties, exactly how can they help and how do they help? At least some of the time, but admittedly not enough of the time. Well, it's because what they do is they direct your brain cells to produce proteins that protect and nourish themselves and undo the damage done by these inflammatory proteins, the cytokines. So one mechanism is the antidepressants will give signals to the brain cells to increase production of BDNF, which stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Neurotrophic refers to improving the health and fostering the growth of brain cells. And so this is one way antidepressants can help, even though they don't have direct anti-inflammatory action. They actually 
direct the natural anti-inflammatory chemicals that are present in the brain. Again, especially brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Well, so even though we can't say, all right, if you're depressed, you're not feeling good on antidepressants, just add anti-inflammatory drugs, can't say that yet, uh, but certainly research like this brings us closer to understanding the processes that underlie depression and other mental health disorders, and hopefully will better refine the treatments that we have. You know, I think antidepressants certainly help alleviate the symptoms. Uh, you know, we've hit upon this group of drugs that does give some people some symptom relief, but as far as directly attacking exactly what the problem is underlying depression, unfortunately, uh, we're not quite there. Uh, hopefully, research like this will get us closer to that point. Next up on Psychiatry Today, there was an article that seemed to be all over the place this past week or so about the fact that very widely used medications, both prescription and over-the-counter, have been found to be linked to a greater risk of dementia in the elderly. And of course, this made for a very sensationalistic, splashy headline and soundbite. Uh, sounds very scary. It is a very scary idea. And it certainly is an important issue. Uh, but again, this is one case where the, the message tends to get distorted by the mainstream media. So I wanted to go over the article about this research and hopefully provide a more balanced and realistic view of the issue. But certainly those of you who are 65 and older or have loved ones that age that you care very much about or maybe you're help caring for certainly want to be aware of these issues and should listen up to this discussion and or if you know someone to whom it pertains uh, go get them and have them listen up or check out this podcast after you've listened to it People over the age of 65 who frequently take over-the-counter sleep aids and certain other commonly used drugs may be increasing their risk of dementia according to this new study in which researchers looked at drugs that have so-called anticholinergic effects. What this means is they block the neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, therefore anticholinergic. Now, many drugs fall into this class, including psychiatric drugs, uh, specifically antidepressants, and much more specifically tricyclic antidepressants, such as doxepin, which uh, is commonly used, by the way, as a sleep aid, and one form of doxepin is actually sold and marketed as a sleep aid. And then anticholinergic side effects are also very common in antihistamines, including chlortrimeton. Uh, the chemical generic name of that is chlorpheniramine, and it's found in many over-the-counter allergy and cold medicines. And then there are uh, drugs used to treat overactive bladder, like Detrol, which is oxybutynin. Uh, 
Now, we have known that for some time that even single doses of these medications can cause impairment in cognition, meaning thinking, concentration, and memory, slower reaction time, reduced attention, and reduced concentration. Uh, and that is typical of any drug that has this type of anticholinergic effect. Acetylcholine is important for proper cognition, so anytime you block that pathway, it's going to result in impaired cognition. We're going to tell, take our first commercial break on tonight's show, and when we come back, we'll continue our discussion of this research into the effect of common medications on seniors and the risk of dementia. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And we're talking about how widely used prescription and some over-the-counter medications apparently seem to increase the risk of dementia for seniors. Now, originally the thinking was that these cognitive effects of these medications were reversible if the person stopped taking them. But the most alarming part of this new study is it found a link between heavier use of these medications and dementia, which of course is non-reversible and a severe form of cognitive impairment. Studies have shown as much as 37% of people over the age of 65 use these medications with anticholinergic properties. Now, this report that we're talking about was published on January 26th in the medical journal, Journal of the AMA Internal Medicine. Some previous studies had linked the drugs to permanent cognitive changes, including dementia, but all of those studies had important limitations. For example, some studies failed to take into account that some anticholinergic drugs are used to treat depression and insomnia 
which can be early warning signs of dementia. If you don't account for that, it looks like the medication is causing the dementia while it's really those symptoms that are causing that anticholinergic use. To explain this a little bit better, what it means is that the patient may have other factors that uh, indicate they have problems with dementia in the first place. And those symptoms may be the reasons that they wind up on medications to treat those symptoms and then by coincidence those medications that they need for those symptoms may be somewhat anticholinergic but those drugs are not what caused the dementia in the first place uh, it was there to begin with now in this new study researchers looked at data from the prospective adult changes in thought study which includes patients from Group Health, a healthcare delivery system in Seattle. Researchers identified 3,434 people who were ages 65 and older and were free from dementia at the start of the study. During the follow-up period, which lasted an average of about seven years, 797 study participants or 23.2% were diagnosed with dementia and about 80% of these individuals had Alzheimer's disease. The researchers found that the higher a patient's cumulative dose of anticholinergic medication over the 10 years before entering the study, the greater his or her risk of dementia. A secondary analysis by the researchers showed that it didn't seem to matter when the patient had used the medications during the previous 10 years. It just mattered how much the individual had used in total. The researchers also analyzed the data after omitting the patient's prescription information for the first year or two years before they were diagnosed with dementia. This was done to address concerns that the drugs might be used to treat what were actually the early signs of dementia, as we talked about before. However, the results remained the same after these omissions. Based on the findings, people who took 10 milligrams of doxepin daily for a total of three years would be at increased risk of dementia. Now, I can tell you, since doxepin is a medication I'm very familiar with, that 10 milligrams is the absolute smallest possible dose that someone could take. And the same was found to be true of people who take 4 milligrams of chlorpheniramine daily or 5 milligrams of oxybutynin daily. While some anticholinergic medications may be important for certain older adults, uh, it's important to point out that they should not stop taking any medications that are in this category of being anticholinergic until they fully discuss the situation with their doctor. Older people should give their doctor a list 
of all the over-the-counter medications that they use so that their health care provider can look for opportunities to reduce unnecessary anticholinergic medication use. Now, some of the study participants consented to post-mortem brain autopsies, and therefore researchers will be looking at whether those with high anticholinergic drug use also have brain pathology consistent with dementia to try and understand the underlying mechanisms. All right, so where does this leave the general public and the population of senior individuals who may be taking some of these prescription or over-the-counter medications with the anticholinergic properties? And uh, also, where does it leave those who are caregivers of these folks? Well, I think at the very least, if you or someone you're caring for is on any of these medications, it should indicate the need for a careful examination to look at, well, you know, in that time that this person has been on this medication, is it possible that their cognitive function has deteriorated and have a discussion with that patient's doctor, or if it's yourself, your doctor, about the uh, potential anticholinergic side effects of the prescription and over-the-counter medications that you're taking and talk to the doctor about whether there may be alternatives that don't have these anticholinergic side effects and therefore may not either cause or aggravate cognitive problems. Uh, but again, it's very important to emphasize that these medications should not simply be discontinued uh, because that can result in other harm uh, when it may not be the case that the medications are affecting cognitive function. Well, next up on psychiatry today, since the onset of streaming services with movies and television programs, the concept of binge-watching a TV show has become very popular. And we're talking about Netflix and other similar services. So here comes a study that came out on January 29th, and it's from the International Communication Association. And it says that feelings of loneliness and depression are linked to binge-watching of television. And if I, when I just saw that title, my immediate reaction is, well, this is one of those classic chicken and egg questions in medical research. Is it that lonely and depressed people tend to binge-watch? Or is it that just simply the act of binge-watching television shows will cause you to feel lonely and depressed? And then, of course, the hope is that when reading about the study, it will shed some light on that issue. So let's find out, because I'm sure I've already piqued the interest of those of you who engage in binge-watching and those of you who know people who do. 
It seems harmless getting settled in for a night of marathon session for a favorite TV show like House of Cards, for example. But why do we binge watch TV? And can it really be harmless? This study by researchers at the University of Texas at Austin found that the more lonely and depressed you are, the more likely you are to binge watch. These findings are going to be presented at the 65th Annual Conference of the International Communication Association in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Researchers conducted a survey on 316 18- to 29-year-olds on how often they watched TV, how often they had feelings of loneliness, depression, and self-regulation deficiency, and finally on how often they binge-watched TV. They found that the more lonely and depressed the study participants were, the more likely they were to binge-watch TV, using this activity to move away from negative feelings. The findings also showed that those who lacked the ability to control themselves were more likely to binge-watch. That's what they mean by self-regulation deficiency, a fancy way of saying not able to control uh, getting into a behavior and not being able to stop it. Now, these viewers were unable to stop clicking next, even when they were aware that they had other tasks to complete. So, the indication from the study, then, is that this is going in the direction of, if you're depressed and lonely to begin with, you're more likely to engage in binge-watching of a TV show, uh, not that binge-watching in and of itself will cause depression and loneliness. Little empirical research has been done on binge-watching since it is such a new behavior. Psychological factors such as loneliness, depression, and self-regulation deficiency have been known as important indicators of binge behavior in general. For example, people engage in addictive behaviors to temporarily forget the reality that involves loneliness and depression. Also, an individual's lack of self-regulation is likely to influence the level of his or her addictive behavior. Therefore, the study tried to understand binge-watching behavior from this set of known factors. Right, well, I think what we'll do is go to our next commercial break, and after that, we'll finish up our thoughts on the links between loneliness, depression, and binge-watching of television. And after that, we'll have much more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. 
At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. And we're talking about a study finding that lonely and depressed people tend to use binge watching of television as a form of escape from negative feelings. Now, even though some people argue that binge-watching is a harmless addiction, findings from the study suggest that binge-watching should no longer be viewed this way. Physical fatigue and problems such as obesity and other health problems are related to binge-watching and they are a cause for concern. When binge-watching becomes rampant, viewers may start to neglect their work and their relationships with others. Even though people know they should not, they have difficulty resisting the desire to watch episodes continuously. This research is a step toward exploring binge-watching as an important media and social phenomenon. Well, uh, I think my take on it is... Again, you know, whether it's binge-watching certain shows or just uh, watching the TV in general, uh, there are lots of things that people with loneliness or depression may turn to as an escape, uh, as a way of sort of self-medicating their depression and loneliness. Um, And that might include, say, shopping on TV uh, a lot. There are some people who get hooked on uh, shopping channels like QVC. The bottom line is, I think it just points out, we need to focus more on effective treatments for depression and make it more available and reduce the stigma associated with it. And if that were done in a better fashion, maybe we wouldn't have to be talking about behaviors 
that depressed and lonely people engage in too much. All right, well, next up on psychiatry today. In my private practice, I often get asked from patients, isn't there anything that I can do in terms of a good diet to improve how I feel mentally and emotionally? Uh, after all, it can't all be just about taking medications. And the answer about diet and mental health is an emphatic yes. It's absolutely very, very important. Uh, in, in fact, hugely important. And so when I saw this article titled Diet and Nutrition Essential for Mental Health, I said, well, this is perfect. I've got to talk about this on the show because I get asked this question quite a bit. And I feel quite passionately that it is very important. Uh, I always tell people, as far as diet and mental health, garbage in, garbage out. In other words, if you're eating poorly, if you're eating junk food, you're eating bad food, you're not going to feel well mentally, never mind physically. So let's see what this article has to offer us. The evidence is rapidly growing showing vital relationships between both diet quality and potential nutritional deficiencies in mental health. The study that was published in the Lancet Psychiatry Journal on January 29th, leading academics state that as with a range of medical conditions, psychiatry and public health should now recognize and embrace diet and nutrition as key determinants of mental health. Psychiatry is at a critical stage, according to the lead author, with the current medically focused model having achieved only modest benefits in addressing the global burden of poor mental health. I would have to say that sounds like a bleak assessment and somewhat of an indictment of psychiatric medical treatment, but uh, I, I agree. Uh, we, like I said, when we were talking about brain inflammation earlier in the show, we've stumbled upon medications that seem to alleviate the symptoms of mental health problems for certain people, but we clearly uh, have to do better uh, because too many people don't respond to them despite our best efforts. Now, while the determinants of mental health are complex, the emerging and compelling evidence for nutrition as a key factor in the high prevalence and incidence of mental disorders suggests that nutrition is as important to psychiatry as it is to cardiology, endocrinology, and gastroenterology. And what they're hinting at is you always hear nutrition talked about when it comes to heart disease and stroke, diabetes. Uh, it's also very important in mental health. In the last few years, significant links have been established between nutritional quality and mental health. Scientifically rigorous studies have made important contributions to our understanding of the role of nutrition in mental health. Findings of this latest study revealed that in addition to dietary improvement, 
evidence now supports the contention that nutrition-based prescription has the potential to assist in the management of mental disorders at the individual and population level. Studies show that many of these nutrients have a clear link to brain health, including omega-3s, B vitamins, particularly folate and B12, choline, iron, zinc, magnesium, methionine, vitamin D, and amino acids. And while the authors advocate for these to be consumed in the diet where possible, additional select prescription of these as nutrient supplements or nutraceuticals may also be justified. Many studies have shown associations between healthy dietary patterns and a reduced prevalence of and risk for depression and suicide across cultures and age groups. Maternal and early life nutrition is also emerging as a factor in mental health outcomes in children, while severe deficiencies in some essential nutrients during critical development periods have long been implicated in the development of both depressive and psychotic disorders. A review done in late 2014 has also confirmed a relationship between unhealthy dietary patterns and poor mental health in children and adolescents. Given the early age of onset for depression and anxiety, this information points to dietary improvement as a way of preventing the initial incidence of common mental disorders. And that certainly would be a welcome concept to think of what can be done in children that would go a long way to preventing their developing mental health disorders later in life simply by paying better attention to adequate nutrition. It is therefore seemingly time to advocate for a more integrative approach to psychiatry with diet and nutrition as key elements and time for clinicians to consider diet and additional nutrients as part of the treating package to manage the enormous burden of mental illness. Now, there are already some well-known examples of how treatment uh, involving certain nutrients or different levels of certain nutrients can have significant effects on mental health issues. Uh, a study found many, many years ago that the higher the level of fish consumption in a population, the lower the levels of bipolar depression in that population, therefore demonstrating one of the benefits of omega-3s in the diet. Also, several years ago, a nutraceutical called Deplin which is 
um, a, a form of folic acid that is highly specified and is better able to penetrate into the brain than just regular folic acid that you would buy in the store over the counter without a prescription uh, is helpful in alleviating symptoms of depression not as a primary treatment but rather when a patient is already taking antidepressants and uh, still is suffering from depression so again the field is starting to move in this direction uh, but it's at the very early stages uh, there are companies who are making and selling uh, nutrition supplements to augment antidepressant and other psychiatric medications in the treatment of mental illness and <clears throat> there are even companies who have listened to psychiatry as a group and said hey you know we we think a lot of specific nutritional things should be included in a supplement that would help the mentally ill feel better and they basically compounded a supplement based on psychiatrists specifications uh, so we are headed more in this direction of this field but in general as I've often emphasized as far as dietary things to help with mental function think of a heart healthy diet because a heart healthy diet is a brain healthy diet so uh, low fat uh, very little simple carbs lots of fresh fruits and vegetables uh, lean meats whole grains uh, this is um, a good diet for good cardiovascular health and also a good diet for good mental health and don't forget daily exercise as well all right well we're going to take another break on psychiatry today and when we come back we'll have some stress in the workplace updates for you and so please join me for that you're listening to psychiatry today with dr scott be right back after this break the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. 
If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. And for what seems like uh, several weeks in a row, I have another stress in the workplace update for you. Actually, a couple of articles. Um, first, we're going to talk about some healthy ways to relieve work stress. Uh, the article gives lots of suggestions. We'll go over each one of them, see if they really seem helpful or not, and give you my own suggestions to go along with those. And then if you've ever wondered whether it was the right thing to share with your boss whether you have a mental health problem or not by way of maybe explaining why you've struggled at work or have had to miss work at times, uh, if you've wrestled that issue, we're going to go over that as well. But first, an article that says it has the 10 healthiest ways to relieve work stress. It's bad enough when your job generates the kind of workday stress that makes you want to punch your office wall. That is, if you have one, right? But when anxiety follows you home and haunts your brain after hours, it becomes toxic, threatening to mess with your relationships and health. Even your work performance can take a hit. Since you can't ace your workload, if you don't carve out the much-needed downtime to disengage and recharge. So the first suggestion is unwind on your commute. The minute you step out of the office, your downtime officially begins. Take advantage of it by losing yourself in activities you can do in transit, like finishing a book on tape or plugging into a relaxing playlist. Instead of ruminating over the events of the day, focus on things you enjoy that have nothing to do with work. By the time you reach your front door, you'll feel distance from it all. I do think that's a good idea, and especially important if you have a long commute or one that's bound to be marked with frustration due to traffic, it's good to have something you enjoy going on to distract you from those issues. <clears throat> now, this next one, I thought, well, this is kind of obvious, and who wouldn't do this anyway, but it says, change out of your work clothes. All right, well, you know, who doesn't do that when they come home? What we wear subconsciously influences our thoughts and actions. So hanging up that suit and tie and putting on jeans and a sweatshirt Cue your brain that the workday is over and it's time for some R&R. Wear the clothes you associate with de-stressing and the job stress will be pushed aside. Well, while it's not quite that easy, I do agree that getting out of the work clothes quickly will help you get out of work mode and more into relaxation and leisure mode. Um, it's fairly obvious. I'm just not so sure... Uh, that most people don't go ahead and do this anyway. And then take time alone. 
To escape the pressure and anxiety of the workday, a lot of people need to be left alone for 30 minutes or so when they first arrive home and decompress, especially if their work involves dealing with lots of people. So tell your partner you'll help with the kids with dinner a little later and grant yourself permission to lie down, take a shower, or just veg. There's something about doing nothing that recenters the brain and helps you transition out of work mode. Hmm. Now, when I read that suggestion, I thought to myself, you know, that's not going to go over all that well when someone comes home and their partner or spouse has been dealing with things around the house that needed to be fixed and the kids and their issues and the household chores and all of that. And they've been looking forward to you coming home all day to lend a hand and or to lend an ear to the difficulties that they've been dealing with. So if you come home after being at work all day and expect that, well, I just need my alone time first, Again, that's not necessarily going to go over too well. So I think rather than having that expectation that you're just going to have this wonderful alone time after leaving your partner alone all day, there has to be some sort of negotiation. That, yes, I totally agree that people may need some decompression time uh, upon arrival home from work, especially if their commute either didn't allow for sufficient decompression time or the commute itself is so stressful because of traffic that that didn't allow the person to adequately decompress. But there needs to be a negotiation with the partner or spouse to say, all right, well, you know, when you get home from work, you know, you still need to pay attention to myself and the kids uh, but if you need some decompression time before having to confront the issues that have come up during the day while you're at work, then we can allow a reasonable amount of that um, before such time as it's uh, time to dive into whatever issues are going on. Um, but that it should just be an automatic expectation that everyone else has to wait for you to have your alone time. Nope. Uh, I think it'll work a lot better if it's discussed and negotiated and agreed upon. And furthermore, uh, that you in turn allow your spouse or partner to have their alone time uh, at different times, whether it's on the weekends or even during the week in the evenings. Now this next uh, suggestion, sweat out anxiety. If you're a morning workout person, Here's an argument for moving it to after the day is over. Being physically active eases the tightness and tension in your muscles that has accumulated over the last eight hours. Plus, exercise bathes your brain in a feel-good cloud of endorphins, and it pumps your mood as well. Two things that should help you shake off work anxiety. Well, uh... There may be something to be said for that, but I also think that exercising first thing in the morning will help you cope better with the stress you're going to face during the day. 
So I still am an advocate of early morning exercise for that reason. And then there's the issue of exercise late in the evening may interfere with and disrupt sleep. It may make it either harder to fall asleep or harder to stay asleep once you fall asleep. And I know this has been controversial. I've talked about on the show that different studies have found different results uh, when it comes to studying late in the evening. Generally, the recommendation is not to do heavy exercise within four hours of bedtime so as not to disrupt sleep. However, there are exceptions. I think the bottom line is that daily exercise is such an important way to reduce all kinds of stress, not just work-related stress, that however you can make it work for you is best and you should just exercise regardless. Uh, But if you see that it's having a direct negative effect on your sleep, then you do need your sleep, so you should adjust the time you exercise accordingly. Uh, If you just cannot see yourself doing it first thing in the morning, the next best time to do it is immediately upon leaving work. This next suggestion sounds a little unusual, but there are some merits to it. Wash your hands. The workday may be over, but you can't stop thinking about a decision you made in a meeting or you're doubting your judgment with a client. Try this. Wash your hands with soap and water. A University of Michigan study found the simple act of washing your hands symbolically cleanses you of the need to justify a decision. Research suggests that hand washing lets you wipe the slate clean, get over your doubts, and move forward. Well, the point of the study was that people felt better about themselves, especially less guilt. So if it helps you get rid of your work stress, that's fine. But um, it was guilt in general that uh, people escaped from when they wash. Don't talk work over dinner. Well, when you rehash everything you're anxious about over and over to your friends or partner, this can increase your anxiety. If something out of the ordinary happened, fine, go ahead and vent. But if it's just the usual frustration, it might be easier to forget about if you don't verbalize it. I do think it would go over well with your partner or spouse or friends that you're not constantly complaining about day-to-day issues that go on at work, uh, not to bring the negativity at work home, and uh, again, the more you dwell on it, the more it's going to affect you as well. And that goes along with the next one, keep work at work, not bringing work home. If you regularly finish reports or projects off the clock, then, of course, work stress is going to be hard to shake because you're always on the job. It affects your relationships with friends and family as well. Your mind is elsewhere instead of with them. So if you have to meet a deadline, instead of doing work in the evening, try to get up early to complete it. Otherwise, leave it behind. Savor the day's successes. A recent study found that people who spent a few minutes at the work day at the end writing down what they felt they had accomplished reported lower stress levels that evening after leaving work and a greater sense of detachment from the office. Schedule something to look forward to. Whenever you get a kick out of doing in your downtime, schedule it for your post-work hours. You'll be busy and occupied, which counteracts boredom. And 
It's when we're bored that we tend to turn our thoughts to what makes us anxious. So give yourself a reward after work. And then cut the digital leash. Sure, it can be uh, a negative effect on your career to totally shut off your devices after hours and not reply to messages from your boss. But when you're always checking your phone to see if anyone from work has messaged you, you'll never be able to separate work from your personal life. Get a realistic sense of what's expected at work, and if you can get away with checking email and voicemail once or twice a night, set those boundaries and stick to them. Otherwise, set your your device to airplane mode or stash it out of sight in a desk drawer. And whatever you do, on vacation, you must make sure you completely disconnect. No email or voicemail. So you see, all these suggestions are about achieving better work-life balance, and that's how you reduce stress from work. Going to have to quickly wrap up tonight's show. Hope that you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. And if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.